I'm not going down just because of something some stupid adults are doing. Mobile suits. Monday, Monday. Camille's a man's name, and I'm a man! Uh, no carrots, please. Mobile suit? Roger that. Mobile suit. Mobile suit. Change. Although all enemies were defeated, Earth did not change one bit! The commander? <laughs> He's lost it! <laughs> every other day, every other day, every other day of the week is fine! Mobile suits. You're a soldier here, aren't you? If you want to be more than just a grunt, you better learn to see the whole picture. Uh, yes, yes, sir. I'm the enemy, you idiot! Miss Matilda! Hey guys, welcome back and welcome to a brand new year of Fanholes Mobile Suit Mondays. Hey, what's up guys? This is Derek, Derek WC. I'm going to be one of your hosts tonight and joining me tonight is one of my fellow Gundam enthusiasts. Why don't you give a shout out and let everybody know who's here tonight? Hey Derek, I hope we understand each other. I think we need to understand each other. Did I mention we should understand each other? Because I, I think we should understand each other. You know, if I'm not busy forcing war upon you, maybe we can, you know, come to an understanding? Really? Because I was thinking, yeah, an understanding would be great. Okay, okay. And then re remember that remember that bouquet of flowers I gave you? Like, so... Oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I get you. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. That, was that literal or a metaphor? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't remember. People can take it whichever way they want to, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, in case you haven't figured it out from our not-so-subtle hints, I think we are forcing our, our warish ways upon you as you listen with your, your virgin ears, but we are going to be discussing Mobile Suit Gundam 00, the movie, Awakening of the Trailblazer tonight, and this is the first in a month-long theme for fan holes, which we're calling Blue Cupcakes Month. And if you don't know what Blue Cupcakes is a reference to, well, I would point you back to episode 16 of the proper Fanholes podcast, where we do go into the nitty-gritty on what exactly Blue Cupcakes is. But if you're just listening to this now and you want a quick refresher, basically the long and short of it is it's a funny little terminology that... I came up with some friends and I sort of shared with the fan holes and from that point on it became part of our lexicon but basically it's just a way to describe things that are kind of weird for the sake of being weird usually it involves a lot of crazy anime for example something like serial experiments lane or if you're fond of Grant Morrison tripping out in his comics and doing all these kind of meta themes and, and craziness like it also would apply to that as well so it's just the to me it was always the visuality of you know a spongy cake but 
colored with blue dye and that seeming strange and unusual. And of course, there is the whole tie into Grant Morrison's Invisibles where, you know, they were literally, you know, Fanny was literally throwing up blue cupcakes and I went, whoa. So that, that always stuck with me. And basically that's why we're doing like a whole theme month where we wanted to discuss stuff within our lexicon of our spinoff shows that we all thought was kind of weird, kind of strange, kind of blue cupcakes. And of course, as we'll get into certain moments in this film, there's nothing that's more blue cupcakes except for maybe the T-Spear in Char's counterattack than Mobile Suit Gundam 00 Awakening of the Trailblazer. But I, I thought maybe because we haven't really discussed Gundam 00 on Mobile Suit Mondays too much. I mean, I know we, we probably have brought it up a little bit on the proper shows before we had the spinoff shows and stuff, but I figured maybe we could give people a sort of a brief rundown on... Gundam 00 and basically like the the series was airing in Japan in October 2007 and there were two seasons so instead of it being sort of like the traditional year-long series where there were like you know 49 to 52 episodes over the course of a year it basically got split up into two 26 episode or is it 25? Like, I, I forget. Like, some of them... Is one yeah, of them 26? They're both 25, yeah. Both okay, they're seasons. both 25. Okay, so they're, they're both 25 episode seasons, but when, I guess when you put them together, it's almost like you've got, you know, like a full series, a full atypical Gundam series and everything like that. And that ran until about March 2009 in Japan. But over here, of course, in America, the license was announced by Bandai Entertainment over at New York Comic Con in 2008. And then it started airing twice weekly, November 24th, 2008, on the Sci-Fi Channel. So I know, I know that's basically where I started watching it for the most part. I mean, I, I remember there were probably like, you know, fan subs out there and I might have watched maybe a few episodes subtitled but I think when it started coming out on the sci-fi channel I was pretty much watching that religiously and then I also ended up watching I think they were playing monster the enemy monster on sci-fi after that too so I remember watching that whole block and kind of it, it was kind of like the death nails of Gundam in in the US almost you know because it was like that was the last dubbed series and it wasn't on Cartoon Network and it was just kind of barely squeaking out it seemed like but I mean I was definitely happy to see it but it seemed like that you know of course on sci-fi there was tons and tons of commercial interruptions and stuff like that. They also yeah they, they edited a chunk out of every episode and not really for content just for like length basically. Yeah like to, to fit their programming broadcasts. Like do you, do you do you remember like how the second season would always have a scene like after the credits and stuff? Yeah, like yeah. they cut every single one of those. One of those out, right? Yeah. Okay. So so there's there's that aspect to it. And then basically in the I guess 2009 was when the second season aired on the Sci-Fi Channel and it finished up like I guess it started in June and finished up in September. So it was kind of like a whole you know, summer run, pretty much, for the second season of Gundam Double O. But I, I, I just kind of wanted to give the caveat, like, for me, I'm kind of like, I, I was looking back on it, and I'm like, man, it's been, like, almost, like, seven or eight years since I've seen this series. So I, I, I think I am depending on Mike to kind of, you know, fill me in in case I, I mess up or miss something, because it's been a long time since I've I've watched the show. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the basic nutshell 
description I would give is that Gundam 00 is in the far-flung future. Earth's run out of fossil fuels, but, you know, surprise, surprise, we're all still fighting over solar energy. And the main protagonist is a character from the war-torn Republic of Krugis, who is named Setsuna F. Sei. And along with his three fellow Gundam Meisters, Lock-On Stratos, Alleluia Haptism, and Tieria Erdi, they make up the organization known as Celestial Being, which is a private military organization that is dedicated to eradicating war and uniting humanity through the use of the advanced machines known as Gundams. That's basically how it becomes the whole, you know, mobile suit Gundam type show and everything. And, and you know, my simple explanation of the two seasons, you know, summing it up in a few sentences is basically, you know, Celestial Being comes into conflict with not only the Earthspheres Federation and the Outlaws, but a third party of kind of new type inspired antagonists who are called the innovators and they're regarded as the next step in human evolution. So you've got this kind of three-way conflict and lots of rival fusioning going on between former rivals and stuff like that that leads to a bunch of cool battles. But I mean that's basically how I kind of describe it. I, I don't know if you have anything to add about like your first exposure to Gundam 00, like how did you watch it all subtitled or you know just what, what something you might want to share with the listeners on your exposure to it yeah this 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 was like i think the first gundam show i watched like as it was being aired in like japan like live like i would torrent it or watch it streamed like fan sub like you know every week after it came out and I mean, this was kind of the show that had to redeem the Gundam name, basically, because the show right before this was Destiny. So, like, you know, I think Destiny ended in 2004, so Gundam kind of took some time off after that because it was so, like, you know... I, Destiny was, like, popular, like, commercially, but, you know, the fans were all pretty disappointed with the story, so, you know... Obviously, like, they took, like, three years off after that. And, like, this show, I think, for the most part, kind of, like, made, like, the Gundam name viable again, at least in Japan. Like, over here, I think it was, you know, like you said, Gundam was already lingering in a state of near-death anyway. So I don't think, unless this, sh this show was put on, like, Cartoon Network or something, like, there was, nothing was gonna happen to bring it, like, back to the prominence it had in the 90s or or the early 2000s when, like, Wing was on Toonami and all that. No, like, I, I watched, like, all 50 episodes, like, pretty much the week they aired, like, in Japan and stuff. And then, yeah, and, uh, then I ended up watching the dub, like, on Sci-Fi, and, like, my roommate at the time, like, I was kind of like, hey, there's this Gundam show, it's pretty good. Like, I watched all of it already. Like, you know, you're in for some good shit, so, like, trust me, like, watch this with me. And he was like, yeah, okay, like, he's not the big, he wasn't the biggest Gundam fan, but he watched it and he, he ended up liking it. If someone, like, relatively uninterested or unfamiliar with Gundam likes it, then I think that's, that's a sign of a, you know, a pretty solid product, basically. Yeah, I mean, it, it is what's considered in the Gundam franchise as an AU. It is an alternate universe, so if you basically start at the first episode of season one of Gundam 00, you are in on the ground floor, like a lot of Japanese 
franchises. You know, they don't always continue on or sequelize to the degree that they do in the United States or in terms of like comic books where it becomes very insular and if you haven't been, you know, reading X-Men since, you know, X-Men 94 and giant-sized X-Men, then you're totally lost or whatever. It's it's kind of the idea of, okay, well, we, we've done these X-Men for, you know, one season and now, you know, ba-bam, it, it's still called X-Men, but now you've got a totally fresh set of characters, you know, whether they're like, you know, Pixie or you know, the New Mutants or whoever it is, and you, you sort of start from scratch and, and you're in on the ground floor. So with this, like all these characters that we're talking about, the Gundam Meisters, you know, obviously if you were starting from the beginning, you you would be in on the ground floor. And I, I don't know if, if we're, we're speaking for ourselves or not, but I mean, I, I sort of agree with you because, you know, obviously we've had discussions in great length about you know, how we feel about Seed Destiny especially, but even Seed in general. I mean, you know, there, there were some cool things about Seed, and then it was sequelized in Seed Destiny, and that started out to me very well, and then it quickly sort of fell apart, like, you know, midway through that series. Yeah, it derailed, and, and, yeah. You know, and, and, and for both you and I, I think we both agree it, it kind of is a big disappointment. I, I don't know that that's true, and I, I feel like in Japan, like with all the merchandise, I mean, I know you were trying to express that when you said it was a success commercially, but I, I feel like, you know, why would they bother remastering Seed and remastering Seed Destiny if it wasn't a viable, loved property in Japan? Like, I get the vibe that they, they kind of like Seed and Seed Destiny in Japan, even though maybe yeah, you yeah. and I don't like it too much, you know? Yeah, but. But, I mean, I, I guess in terms of people who are listening, you know, I, I think for us, Gundam Double O was kind of a return to form in the fact that, if, if not in terms of, say, the original series, it was a return to form in terms of the alternate universes that we had been exposed to. You know, I mean, this series does have a very, you know, Gundam Wing, Gundam X, you know, like, like, even G Gundam kind of vibe, you know, you're starting from scratch, you're being introduced to a bunch of new characters, there's lots of war-torn stuff going on, but there is a, there is aspects of kind of the super robot genre that sneak into it, you know, the way, you know, Hiro Yui's got his big old buster rifle and, and all that kind of stuff, so I, I, I think in that sense it kind of is a return to form for something that we're pretty familiar with, you know, given our, you know, American exposure to the Gundam franchise, you know, especially given that something like Gundam Wing was on Cartoon Network, so so in some sense it plays on that nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, it's I think the the GN particle is probably the the most like supernatural version of like or I, I should say like rip off of the Manofsky particle or whatever like right, the right. G the GN particles pretty much do whatever the fuck they need basically like who need to need to communicate telepathically GN particles can do it like need infinite power GN particles can do it like need to friggin teleport yeah GN particles can teleport you okay it's kind of like him particles or or the the Mr. Fantastic's unstable molecules. It's like yeah, whatever, whatever they need the GN particles to do, they can they can do that thing to facilitate, you know, clever, clever explanations or, or move along the plot and stuff like that. So I think I think what we'll do now is just just so you guys know, basically they they had the two seasons when the 
final season was wrapped up even on like the Japanese audio commentary for the actual episodes that were being released on DVD and Blu-ray at the time and everything, it was already known, it was already sort of in the works that there was going to be this theatrical release. And even the actors at the time were like, well, we know there's going to be a movie, but they were kind of laughing with each other on one of the commentaries on the DVDs where they said like, hey, you know, I don't know if you're in this or not, you know, and they were all kind of laughing with each other, giving each other crap, like, hey, you might not be involved, you know, Zordon may have called you off to a peace conference or something, (laughs) you know, like that kind of thing. But basically, you know, at the end of episode 25 of season two, you know, people knew there was going to be this movie called Mobile Suit Gundam 00, the movie Awakening of the Trailblazer. And the the Japanese premiere of the film was September 18, 2010, and then Bandai Entertainment hosted what was the, the North American premiere of the film at New York Comic Con or New York Anime Festival on October 10, 2010. So basically, you know, we, we got it pretty much like a month. I mean, th- th- this to me seems like also it's a good point in Gundam history, like how you were describing, you know, we're in this internet age, and even, I think at this point, Bandai was finally catching up to the idea, like, this was one of the first things that was also, what do they call it, simulcast, you know, it was also simultaneously aired on YouTube with, like, subtitles and things like that when it was released, and then, you know, we got, like, the DVD and Blu-ray, and I remember being sort of in awe like, I was like, great, like, wow, a, a Gundam show's on Blu-ray. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was I was kind of excited yeah. that I could buy, like, a Blu-ray, you know, of, of you know, a Gundam anime. And I was like, great, like, I can put this on my PS3. It'll look all HD and cool. Like, I, I was definitely excited about that. So, so there is that kind of aspect to this film and everything. And I just kind of wanted to go into that. But I think what we'll do is we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll play a trailer for a awesome podcast, and then when me and Mike come back, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty, the 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 blow-by-blow blow of what goes on in this movie, and what is so freaky-deaky, blue-cupcake-y about it. So keep listening, and we'll be right back. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Or maybe... Dragon! Play! How about... Or, in the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazers! Or this... The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew 
Home was a pen. Humanity? Cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes under Two True Freaks Presents Anime Freaks. Hey guys, welcome back. So we are back to discuss Gundam 00, the movie Awakening of the Trailblazer, and something that Mike reminded me of during the break that you guys might all be interested in is a Gundam theatrical movie that is all original is not exactly the most common thing in the Gundam franchise. A lot of the movies that were released were all compilation movies, but speaking in terms of original movies that were made just to be aired as movies, Awakening of the Trailblazer actually holds some distinction as it's only the third movie from the Gundam franchise to sort of hold that honor, and prior to that something we have discussed on Mobile Suit Mondays, actually on our first episode, was Gundam F-91, and that was a theatrically released movie, and it was, of course, original content. And then prior to that, Char's Counterattack. So, I mean, essentially this is the third original feature film that was released in terms of the Gundam franchise. So that, again, sort of gives it a little special notch in terms of, of Gundam history and everything like that. And, man, like, I was telling Mike, like, you know, I, I enjoy this movie for the most part. I mean, yeah, there are some things that are super freaky-deaky and blue cupcakey about it, but it is definitely entertaining if you sort of, you know, let your mind go and just fall into the groove and enjoy it and everything. But it it is kind of, it was kind of a pain in the ass to synopsize, like, you know, and sort of, explain things to people you know because it's one thing to watch something but it's another thing to sort of convey something to a listener who who may or may not be familiar with the material and i i just feel like that's one of those things where this film you know it's interesting i i read a number of reviews on it and one of the comments is you know this this film is probably not for newcomers you know it, it is a no. It, it, it is like one of these TV reunion type movies. Like it's kind of like you you had to have seen the Six Million Dollar Man to appreciate the reunion telefilm. Do you know what I mean? Like you yeah. you you had to watch the Kenneth Johnson Incredible Hulk before you watched you know Return of the Incredible Hulk or Trial. You know. It's funny. It's like the first review I saw of this movie, like written in English by someone who had seen like the Japanese like premiere or whatever. Like gave it like a like a D grade, and they were all like like I don't there's too many characters I don't know who any of them are, and I was kind of like does this reviewer know that there was like a fifty episode like TV show right before this movie or you know yeah. like they, they kind of reviewed it from the standpoint of it being a standalone, which it definitely is not. Yeah, it's it's not a standalone movie, so that's 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 one thing where I think well you know I I guess not to belabor the point, but I'll, I'll sort of get into synopsizing and, and telling people what's going on, and then we can, you know, it, like we usually do on Gundam, we'll stop as we go along and kind of chat about things and everything, and of course, Mike, feel free to, to chime in and everything as we as we continue. Basically, the, the movie itself opens two years after Celestial Being's last great battle, and the year is now 2314 AD. And on Celestial Being's asteroid base, 
their chief engineers, Ian and Linda Vashti, unveil the Gundam that Setsuna always wanted, the Gundam 00 Quanta. And then there's this kind of, well, I, I'm sure you love it, and, and it is pretty great, but I, I kind of refer to it as a, it's kind of a somewhat goofy meta trailer for Celestial Being, the movie, that is kind of like this, this reminder to the viewers of the events that occurred at the end of Gundam 00 Season it's 2. It's full of continuity errors. Yeah, and and also it's like one of those things where it's it's supposed to mockingly poke fun at probably, you know, if anything else, you know, I mean, a Hollywood film that's interpreting like a true-to-life story and how it is glamorized and really ha- ha- it becomes so far removed from the actual truth of the events that it, it becomes this whole, whole totally different animal. So, I mean, and that's definitely played for laughs here. But, it, it, I mean, it, it's kind of twofold. I mean, I, I suppose if you were paying attention to it, like, it could possibly give a new viewer, you know, some insight or, or sort of get them up to speed in, like, a funny and clever way. But, I mean, it, again, like we're saying, this is definitely something that's filled with in-jokes right at the start for people who have been kind of loyal followers of this TV series. Like, that's basically how it opens. And, and you know, the punchline is even, you know, one of the main protagonists from the Gundam 00 series, Saiji Crossroad, is there. And he's actually in the audience watching the movie, but he actually played a major role in the TV series as Setsuna, the lead character's co-pilot, and he even comments as he's 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 watched the movie and he's leaving and he's kind of like, man, I would I wasn't even in the movie, man. Like, what's <laughs> up with that? Like, so it, it, it is this kind of also a, a sort of meta commentary that you know, it, even though it purports to be a retelling of true life events, you know, somebody who was actually there is not really there, you know? I liked the whole, like, it was almost like they reinterpreted the Gundam Meisters as, like, the Voltron Force or something, like... Yeah, I mean, there, there and there was lots of kind of, like, super robot aspects to it where they, they you know, I mean, essentially what, they, they sort of form Blazing Sword, I guess, to, yeah. to, keep, to keep rolling with your analogy, you know? And, and you know, it's to some degree, I, I thought it was funny because some of the reviews I, I remember reading about this film were like, this animation is terrible and what is this and you know and it's like it's almost like they sort of missed the joke until the joke like slapped them in the face but i i kind of don't know how you could miss it like i mean it's like one of those things where you're caught off guard for like maybe the first 30 seconds but i mean once they start spouting out like the sort of it's like they spout out the politically charged dialogue but in such a uh, a sort of facetious and and ridiculous tone like you can sort of tell that this is you know kind of like a joke you know and then and then of course when they pull out and you're like oh yeah it's it's this it's this faux movie it's like it, it's what what it reminded me of is when you when you told us about the whole I think it was the IDW Angel series where they tried to make a movie of like Angel's life and 
like yeah. you were like totally wrong and like yeah. what like Nicolas Cage was cast as Angel <laughs> yeah. or something. Like and I mean that gun, that gun gun was a white guy who used right. guns. Yeah. Who used <laughs> so guns. It's like, like the typical know? Hollywood like complete misunderstanding of what it actually is, basically. Yeah, and, yeah. and what took place. And that that's that's kinda of what this is here. I mean it's it's the exact same thing. I know what it reminded me of, like the first time I saw it was that scene in the beginning of the Boo saga in Dragon Ball where they have like the Mr. Satan movie about how the cell games. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah that, that's definitely what it reminded me of where like, you know, it's, they, it goes obviously by Mr. Satan's recollection of events. Right, or his purported re retelling for his benefit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you know, the other thing that is probably worth mentioning in case people are not aware of this, but on the, the Double O Awakening of the Trailblazer DVD, actually one of the special features is that you can watch the entirety of this trailer like on its own, like without being spliced into the movie. So that's kind of a cool little nod. And that also has like an English dub and the Japanese original language track too. So it, it's kind of fun if you just dig the 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 sort of in joke you know that 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 this whole trailer is like you can appreciate it on its own for for what it is as well one other like little thing i love about that is like there's a character in the series named sergey smirnov and like he's he's known as like the wild bear of russia and like if you look on the bridge of like the the like rebel ships there's a fucking like cartoon bear in a spacesuit like sitting on in one on one of the chairs so it's like I, I like I don't know that's just ridiculous they they, they took his nickname a little too yeah. literally yeah so after after Saji Crossroad basically you know finishes watching this movie he heads off to visit his girlfriend Louise Havley at an Earth Federation hospital but he also is wondering what his old co-pilot Satsuna is up to these days. Meanwhile, Princess Marina Ishmael and her political aide, Shireen, attempt to inspect this crooked colony construction facility, but their shuttle is attacked by three mobile suits from the same colony corporation looking to be rid of any opposition to their operation. Luckily for the princess, our main protagonist, Setsuna FCA, is reintroduced in a customized colony flag mobile suit and destroys all three of her attackers. Meanwhile, on the shuttle, Lock-On Stratos disarms the colony representative who sought to shoot the princess. As Lock-On and Setsuna fly off, Lock-On asks Setsuna if he'll even say hi to his girlfriend, the princess. So there's they they kind of have a funny moment there, and I, I I I for me like that was a moment I sort of keyed in on and enjoyed like because I always took it that way you know that they obviously had a it, I mean again this is something you you sort of need to have seen the series to understand but you know Marina Ismail and Setsuna always had that sort of will they won't they you know sort of never realized romance in the middle of this war-torn saga and again it, it, it's it to me it, it does very much echo hero yui and 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 relina peacecraft sort of relationship where you know you know there's some kind of mutual attraction but it is often not acted upon you know because they're too busy you know being soldiers or being heroic or, or what have you 
Yeah, I, I like all of Lock-On's like, oh man, this guy doesn't get it. Like, <laughs> he's like, you're not going to say hi to her? And he's just like, I don't feel the need. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, and it's even funnier because I, I think Lock-On's one of those guys where it's like, dude, like, it, I, I guess Lock-On is kind of voicing that whole idea that I've always had about Peter Parker where it's like, dude, I, I wish I had, like, a hot blonde and a hot redhead fighting over me, like... You know, like, like, what, who are you? What, what, you know, what first world problems you have? You know, like that kind of thing. And, and it's almost like he doesn't even get that he's got all these, like, you know, wonderful women that, that want to be a part of his life. And, you know, one of them's like a princess, you know, and then of course the other one felt is, is waiting for him when they come back to the Ptolemy, you know, their spaceship, the celestial being space craft or whatever. And it's almost like the same thing, like this guy, you know, like, he, he doesn't get that all these chicks want his job, you know, whatever. <laughs> or he does, but he's just so nonchalant about it, you know, kind of like, yeah, whatever. But I guess I guess that's how those lead characters often are, you know, that, and it does, again, echo sort of the hero Yui kind of archetype where they're this cool customer, and whereas, like, you know, somebody in Pokemon, like Brock, would get all blushy-faced and freak the fuck out, like, th this guy is cool, like, he's not, he's not gonna lose his shit over... Uh, female who is heavily attracted to him. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's just kind of socially stunted anyway. Like, sort of like. <laughs> yeah, well, they do. They do sort of talk about that. How he's dealing with because they, they they explain that he too is kind of revealed to be one of these innovators. So he's kind of dealing with his new place in the world and his role. You know, being sort of a, you know, a, a, as they purport, a, a next step in human evolution. So, you know, obviously he's got a lot of stuff going on in his own head, you know, besides kind of something as simple as maybe just a fun relationship. A derelict exploration ship, the Europa from Jupiter, that was abandoned 130 years earlier has left its orbit and is on its way to Earth. Kati Maniquin and Patrick Colasar encounter Veda, the supercomputer of Celestial Being, and its surviving Innovades. It, it, it's funny, like, when you say stuff like that, then you're like, nobody's gonna know what the hell this is. So, like, <laughs> I put, like, parentheses and stuff, because I'm like, okay, like, Veda's the living supercomputer, and then the Innovades that, that they're talking about are basically, it, it's kind of like a designation for people who are not strictly Innovators. I guess it'd be the difference between like mutants and mutates you know like they you know basically tieria who's one of the main gundam meisters decides that he is an innovate he's not actually an innovator like he hasn't become the next step in evolution he's just artificially created he's a living bioterminal that is a next step on the road to becoming the next step in human evolution but they're not quite there yet so basically they they encounter these surviving innovates who are now serving the Federation to maintain the mothership. Captain Descartes Shaman is revealed and officially acknowledged as the first purebred innovator. The Earthsphere Federation is exploiting the power of innovators through Descartes, and Descartes Shaman heads out and pilots the Gadelaza to stop Europa from heading towards Earth. Andre Smirnov watches as Descartes make short work of the target and destroys it. So there's this like basically this this kind of weird unidentified object 
that is well it, i guess it is the europa but i mean it's 130 it's like, years old yeah it's like so a go it's like a ghost ship like yeah like they don't they don't really know where it is and how it's been out there so long and then it looks like it's trying to head towards earth and so instead of letting it cause all this destruction you know Descartes, the the innovator guy basically ends up destroying that ship i mean do you have anything on Descartes to this point or like cuz cuz he's sort of original to this film pretty yeah. much so I think well, I, I without we'll, we'll get into his ultimate fate eventually, but I feel like he was like sort of a red herring for this movie, I guess, okay, like because okay. he was like heavily in the promotional materials, and people were like, oh, well, I guess this is the bad guy or something. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, do, so. you do sort of get that vibe from him. Yeah, you know? he's kind of arrogant and like he's yeah, he's like an innovator, like Setsuna, basically, like a natural one. So like you know. He, you, it seems like they're setting him up as with a, on a like collision course with like celestial being and like you know the and Setsuna in particular. Right now we just got like yeah the impression of him that he's like arrogant. He already considers himself like superior to humans, even though he probably was a human not too long ago. Yeah, and it, the Gadelaza is basically a giant mobile armor. So whenever you see a mobile armor in Gundam, you 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 figure that someone like a Gundam's gonna fight it eventually. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with what you're saying. You know, the the whole idea that they present him as somebody who believes himself to be superior. You can see he has these private moments of sort of disdain for the quote-unquote normal humans around him and stuff like that. So you, you would definitely think that he could be a potential nemesis for our main cast of characters. Should we should we give a little background on Andre Smirnoff too? Like Yeah, yeah, please do. Oh, basically look the character I mentioned earlier, if you didn't already know, like Sergei Smirnoff was a pretty large part of the series and Andre is his son and eventually the way it shakes out in the series like they they sort of end up on opposite sides and Andre kills his father. But then uh, he kind of like, you know, he he feels bad about it. And like, I, I forgot how it all turns out in the series. But basically, he just decides to be like the best soldier he can be to, you know, honor his father or whatever. So that's pretty much what he's doing now is like, you know, following orders and, you know, shooting at the ghost ship, basically. Yeah, yeah. So now we are again, I, I mean, a lot of this movie is a series of reintroductions, basically, like where you, you, you're, you're sort of waiting for introductions of, of key and minor characters throughout the course of the TV series and just waiting for them to make their appearances. I mean, kind, kind of a lot like Endless Waltz, I think, in a way, you know, where you're yeah. just waiting for, you know, oh, dude, when's Hiro Yui going to show up? Like, you know, when's Wufei going to show up? Like, when's when's Zex Marquis going to show up? Like, those those kind of notions. And so, you know, continuing on with that, that sort of mentality, Billy Katagiri and Graham Aker, woo! are keeping tabs on the fallen fragments of the Europa. There are unusual events that begin to occur, such as out-of-control electronic vehicles and devices going crazy! It's like they're infected with blue cupcakes. Saji Crossroads leaves his work early to check on his girlfriend Louise Havley, who is having ominous premonitions stating, THEY ARE COMING! And there's this girl, and if I went to the Gundam Wiki, I, I know what her name is, but I don't remember them ever saying it in the actual film. But according to the Gundam Wiki, this is Amia Lee, 
and this young girl arrives at her home only to have her left hand turned to metal by a strange man in a spacesuit who reaches towards her as she screams. No, it's weird. It's like, yeah, that that girl, like, she's in one scene. And, like, she, she was, like, in the promotional materials, too. Like, I guess ostensibly because she's, like, a cute, like, schoolgirl and stuff. But Well, she's 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 sort of, I, I would argue she's in three scenes, but, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, like, like you, essentially this was her big main scene where she actually sort of, did something pretty much right like, yeah it's, it's yeah. just I, like it, I feel like they, they were trying to hide stuff about the movie so they they kind of like took all these minor elements and promoted them when they were like originally promoting this movie yeah it totally makes sense like a lot like Descartes like this this girl who pretty much goes nameless throughout the movie but I'm sure maybe in the the credits or something is where where you find her name or whatever and then and then along those lines after that sequence when the crew of the Ptolemaeus is unable to contact Alleluia and Marie also previous characters from the Gundam 00 series Lock-On and Setsuna head out to find them when a blackout occurs at the Earth Federation Hospital the man in the spacesuit appears before Saji Crossroads and Louise Havley with open arms Louise yells out, telling the spaceman-suited guy to stay away, and Saji knocks him down with a folding chair, like he's on <laughs> WWE. He unlocks the awesome power of the folding chair. <laughs> As the pair flee to the outside of the hospital, Saji notices all the hospital staff are lying unconscious on the ground. The space-suited man catches up to them and throws Saji into the sliding glass doors. Just before the spacesuit man can reach out to Louise, possibly turning her to metal forever, Setsuna pulls up on a motorbike and shoots at the helmet, revealing Ribbons Allmark! Dun dun dun! And of course, if you've never seen the original series, that means absolutely nothing to you. But, real quick, Ribbon's Allmark is basically the big bad of Gundam 00. He is the master manipulator innovator that was working behind the scenes to get everybody to fight and fight against one another so that his group could come out on top. And essentially he is like the personal arch enemy of Setsuna. And on top of that, he should totally be dead. So it's kind of like if, like, I don't know, Peter Parker rolled up, found a dude in a spooky-looking spacesuit, and then webbed off his helmet, and, like, Green Goblin was under there, and it's like, wait a minute, you're supposed to have plane tickets to Europe! You know, like, it's like, you know, he's totally, like, freaked out and everything. <laughs> so. And point of trivia, yeah, Ribbons Allmark in the series is voiced by Toru Furuya, who voiced Amuro Ray in the original. That's another thing I think that the Japanese voice actors talk about in the audio commentary, where they, they talk about, you know, obviously, like, they, they treat him with a great deal of respect and honor for his background and everything, but I, I think they have this funny conversation about... I'm trying to remember what the honorific is, but, but they basically they, they sort of called him, you know, like you know, San, or, you know, like, it was very, like, they treated him very respectfully on set, you know, and, and, of course, on this commentary, they're kind of like, so did anybody just call him, like, hey, dude, like, whatever, and they all start, like, you know, they're kind of, like, embarrassed, and they all start laughing on the commentary about, 
you know how you know like like they shouldn't be so flippant you know it's like but it's like oh i i wish we had gotten known got to know him better enough to to have that formality maybe dropped but obviously you could tell they didn't but they were sort of I don't know, they were having like a funny laugh about it or whatever, so. Yeah, that that's pretty cool. Like I think like I think when we talk about the origin kinda, we kinda like uh say, you know how like Shuji Akaida sounds like a little too old to voice Char, like now, but like I feel like, you know, Furuya Sensei or whatever, his voice hasn't really changed a whole lot since mm, like, yeah. maybe he was a little whinier when he voiced Amuro, but like when he when he first talked in the series, I, like and I had no previous knowledge of it, I was like, oh, is that Amuro? Like, cause like, his voice is pretty distinct as well. That, that's interesting. Should we should we also mention, if we haven't yet, in terms of former Amuros, that the English dub voice of Setsuna FCA is Brad Swale, who also voices Amuro Ray yeah, in, it's the, a, it's a, that's a in cool. the Gundam dub. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird little bit of like stunt casting on both sides, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, they, they have some nods to the original series and the voice casting on, on both ends, whether it's the, the Japanese language... Or the English dub. こいつをガンダムの極回路に取り付けろ。ジオンのモビルスーツの回路を参考に開発したものだ。こんな古いもの。今までのとは違って、ガンダム。ガンダム。ガンダム。ガンダム。ガンダム。ガンダム。ガン
マリーマリーマリーマリーマリー私はマリーなどという名前ではないマリーマリーマリーマリーパーファシーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーはマリーマリーやめるんだマリーマリーマリーマリーパーファシーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリーマリー But yeah, so they're a couple, and they're, they, they left Celestial Being after the series, and now they're being they're dragged into these events. So take it away, Derek. So now we, we cut back to Setsuna, who is beginning to realize that shooting this dude that looks like his former enemy, Ribbon's Allmark, is actually having no effect. Even tries to put plastic explosive on this guy, and when it explodes, it sets off, like... This thing is still walking towards him, but like basically his torso, like his head, his arms, they're all obliterated. But then the bottom half, where the the torso and the legs, they keep walking for a little bit, and you're like, holy crap! And of course, eventually, those the torso and the legs collapse, and they basically crystallize into this metal substance. Meanwhile, Mina and Billy Katagiri. I guess Mina is Billy's like new hot-looking girlfriend or younger model or whatever, but she's also a scientist as well. And so they're analyzing this young girl who was attacked by the the space-suited guy, this Amia Lee character who we barely see but was heavily promoted in the trailers and everything, as Mike said. And her body has partially been assimilated by this strange metal. So it's this kind of creepy, blue cupcake-y weird thing where, like, you know, you've got obviously like a, a human girl, but like these weird metal protrusions are all kind of enveloping her and extruding out of her body, and it looks kind of freaky. Like, obviously, it's nothing that you'd you'd want done to you, you know? It's like one of those things where it makes you, you know, it's, it's kind of the stuff of nightmares, basically, where, you know, it's something where if you dream about having, you know, I don't know, forks coming out of your eyeballs or something, and you wake up in a sweat, like, that's kind of what this is like. There's all these weird metal chunks coming out of this poor girl and everything. At this point, this is when this new enemy is quickly given the designation extraterrestrial, living metal, shapeshifter, or else, for short. And Billy Katagiri basically lets the audience in on this expositional detail that the Else are targeting innovators or people with the potential to become innovators. So this sort of explains the attacks on people like Hallelujah, Setsuna, Descartes, and Louise. And then again, 
sort of tying back into this whole stuff is really weird, in terms of the Gundam franchise, traditionally, the Gundam franchise has really never featured alien life forms. It started out, as we've talked about on previous shows, as being part of a real robot genre. So it was basically about humanity going out and colonizing space. And even though there are some fantasy elements to it, such as like new types and stuff like that, it's not like they ever ran out and, you know, like Macross or something and ran into the Zentradi or like Voltron and had to go fight Zarkon or witches or robeasts or anything like that. So, I mean, it, it strictly speaking was, you know, human people fighting, you know, basically humans fighting wars with humans in space, you know? So, it, I mean, it would be essentially as sort of simplistic as, you know, Star Trek with Khan and Kirk, but there are no Klingons, there's no Cardassians, there's none of that. It's just people in space. But for the first time in the Gundam franchise, this introduces the aspect of aliens to Gundam. I mean, I, I remember this being a big, big deal when, like, synopses were released and promotional kind of descriptions of what this film was going to be about, and lots of people going, what the fuck? Like, aliens? And like, I mean, it was it was kind of a big deal. Like, I mean, at least that's the way I sort of remember it, but uh, am, I, am I remembering it incorrectly? Do you have any similar recollections, Mike? Yeah, a lot of people were kind of, like, apprehensive about this, and, like, like double O kind of... You know, since it took place in our timeline, basically, I don't know if we mentioned that, but like Double O is also like the first like series to take place in like in in real time, I guess. In, like in, you know, in anno anno domini. Yeah, like on yeah. our calendar. So maybe it seemed like an odd choice to like you know do an, a story about aliens and like in in Gundam in general is an odd choice to do a story about aliens, but. Yeah, like, people were kind of like, what, uh, we're not sure how this is gonna pan out, basically. I mean, I guess, I guess it's worth mentioning that one of the historical figures in context of this fictional series is uh, a man named Aeolia Shenberg, and that's the person who Celestial Being and Riven's Allmark, they all sort of base their, you know, sort of goals and manifestos and, and, and decision-making on. And, you know, that, that he has certain lines of dialogue where he talks about the... I'm trying to remember exactly how he phrases it, but the, like, sort of the discourse to come, I guess. And 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 I, I think basically a lot of people took that... You know, it, it basically knowing what we know about this film... You know, the dialogues to come, I think, is what, what he said. Something to that effect. And basically, people take that to mean, oh, like, I guess kind of like in the way, like, when, when Sam Beckett, you know, does Quantum Leaps, and it's on sort of an Earth-based level. But if you look at, you know, somebody like this this prominent figure, influential figure in the franchise talking about, you know, discourse or dialogues to come it's kind of like that last episode of quantum leap where you get the idea like now he's not just gonna like you know quantum leap into like another human being on the planet earth it's like he might quantum leap into like you know zoom dweeby maxi boom bobby or whatever <laughs> on the planet you know quantorg or whatever and have to figure out shit 
with Ziggy there, and he'd be like, oh boy, blibby blobbly or whatever in the language, you know, and, and, and it'd be even crazier than trying to figure out something on Earth, you know, where you sort of have a vague understanding of, of what you're dealing with, you know what I mean? And, and so I think in, the, in this instance, it's, it's kind of like the same idea that, that maybe these dialogues to come were references to potentially having a first contact with an alien species. But then again, I mean, if you if you take the TV series on its own and this movie had never come, I, I think even a lot of the characters say this outright in the dialogue. They were kind of like, but yeah, but we thought that was going to be like, you know, billions of years from now when we could, you know, travel to like other solar systems or something. You know what I mean? Like, like I don't, I don't think they thought it was going to happen so soon, basically. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like... Eolia Schenberg was preparing humankind for something like way down the road, basically. And yeah, they, they didn't expect it to happen like quite so soon. But and that's probably why it's so first contact is like so messy, basically. But, you know, well, I guess we'll get into that. So now at this point, if you remember earlier in our synopsis, we were talking about how Descartes basically destroyed this ship that came from Jupiter, this kind of ghost ship, the Europa, and everybody's pretty convinced that he took care of it. But now, when the Europa reappears after having been destroyed, everybody's kind of freaked out about it because this ghost ship is now back for a second time. It's kind of like killing the boss in a video game, and then the boss magically comes back, and you're like, wait a minute, we thought we killed you. And Celestial Being takes the offensive. Lock-On is in the Gundam Zabanya. Alleluia is paired with Mari Pafasi in the Gundam Harut. And Setsuna is in the Double O Riser. And they all launch to confront the Elves. Setsuna ends up being compromised by this strange feeling, and Double O Riser's left arm is hit and is being slowly assimilated by the Elves. However, Tieria Erda finally makes his return appearance, so we've got yet another great return from a character from the television series, in the Raphael Gundam, and rips out Double O Riser's infected left arm, allowing Setsuna and the team to escape. So this is kind of big because it's the reintroduction of Tiaria. Yeah. Who, when when we last saw him was a computer bioterminal program, pretty much. Yeah, he he had merged with Veda, which is a supercomputer that pretty much you know manages celestial being, and yeah, he he basically had no reason to have a physical body anymore. But now, like he he made himself a new Gundam and a new like bio unit basically to plug his consciousness into to come and help his old buddies out i guess this is probably a good opportunity to ask you since we are talking about the Raphael gundam and it being a new gundam like what what do you think of the the mobile suits in this particular movie like are there to, to this point like is there anything that stands out is there anything like you'd want to specifically talk about or give some focus to i i like like celestial beings like new gundams like i feel like like the first season had pretty unique gundams for the team but then the second season it seemed like they like kind of like i think it was the story was that like marketing wanted the gundam designs a little more simplified to like you know make models easier and i don't know just 
kind of make them less rounded off because the first season's Gundams were a little more like rounded off and like had a lot of like curves and stuff. But the second season's kind of went back to boxy, like squared off Gundams. But the Gundams in this movie, I think, are like, I don't know, they're kind of like oddball designs. Like they all, like all the, aside from Setsuna's, which is kind of like the standard, you know, red and red, white and blue Gundam, you know, like the Harut, the Zabanya, and the Raphael all kind of have like not exactly non-humanoid designs, but like maybe non-humanoid like silhouettes. Like you know, like Zabanya yeah, has yeah. like like I like to call Zabanya like the like the fence Gundam or something. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. Like when they when yeah. they sort of do like the shadowy images, it's like it's it's almost like one of those little like sort of bamboo dividers that people put yeah in like sometimes or something yeah he's got like all those like the bits that come off and like the shielding bits that come off and protect his unit but they're like sort of arrayed on the back of his gundam like it's some kind of weird fence that's like surrounding it and then the harut which is alleluia and mari's gundam is it's kind of like, i don't know it's it's supposed to be like super like I guess aerodynamic, but it like isn't, but then it is like sorta. Like I don't know how to describe it. It's like it looks super sleek, but it's got these big bulky like booster packs on its back. And uh, I don't know, like I, I really like the like its design. Like I think it's probably my favorite out of the four of them, but I don't know. It's a weird like I don't know how you like you'd have to look at it. It's like it's it, it's square and like it's angular and rounded at the same time. I don't know how better to put it, but yeah, I mean that that sort of makes the most sense to me. The it, it seems like depending on where you look at it and how it's transformed and, and those kind of yeah. situations, like there there can be certain edges to it where, like you're saying, like the front of it can seem rounded, but then the rear of it can seem angular. But then when he turns into a, a an actual like sort of human mobile suit form you know then then those can change you know basically. yeah all the angles and the surfaces kind of change and then yeah you've got Raphael, which is Tyria's new gundam and it's cool but rude <laughs> <laughs> but no but cool but cool but basically it looks like a kind of life like sort of mobile suit but then it's got like a huge like sort of backpack that it wears like on its like head almost like a hat and like, it's got these like kind of deployable like claws that fly off and shoot beams and stuff and it's like it's another like odd like oddball design i guess like it it kind of reminds me of like i don't know like sort of like like modok almost like weirdly hmm. like or or like like dr octopus like it's got these weird like it's got like it's a, a top heavy design basically you know you know what what it kind of reminds me of in a weird way is like how sometimes when people design like superhero teams like there there's always the different archetypes so you want to have a bunch of different looking groupings of folks together whether it's you know, color palettes or ethnicities or sizes or, you know, like maybe musculature or what have you, or even just, you know, the difference between like, you know, female characters and male characters and, and that kind of thing, or even, you know, throw in like aliens and stuff. And, and so you've got this sort of diverse group where you can clearly tell everybody apart visually. And it's like one of those things where uh, I, I think it is kind of helpful because, when you have these like great panning space battles where all these 
suits are involved. If they all look the same, I think I would fall back into that whole, you know, black and white, you know, Judge Dredd Ninja Turtles fear of like, wait, did they just shoot Judge Dredd in the face? And you went, no, it's just, you know, Officer McGinty who, you know, looks just like Dredd, except for he got shot in the face. You know, like, whereas, like, in this, it, it's very kind of painfully obvious. It's like, look, you know, uh, Zabanya is, you know, green and kind of looks like a fence. You know, like, you know, you're, you're like, the Haruta is is orange. I mean, you know, like, you know, so you're, it's you're like... Not gonna, you're not going to miss that against the backdrop of space, yeah. Right, right, and also you're, you're never going to be in that situation where you're like, did Setsuna just explode? Because you're like, dude, no. Like, it, it, none of those suits... You know, the Double O Riser doesn't look like any of those other suits. Like, they all sort of are, you know, heavily individualized and customized. And it, it's just one of those things where, you know, that that's what I think a lot of those... You know, if, if people have call signs on their, you know, X-Wing fighter helmets or whatever. You know, it's just one of those things where it helps to clearly distinguish the characters from each other and then of course i'm sure it also helps that they can sell like you know toys and models <laughs> yeah robot damashis and all that other cool stuff uh, from this movie they've only made damashis of like the double o quanta obviously and then like graham's brave and then i think like the the grunt like jinx like whatever like andre and patrick fly and like they haven't made like i would love like a damashi of like harut or zabanya but they haven't yet so and maybe that's because they're they're really complex designs with a lot of moving parts so maybe yeah. if they did release it it would be like 80 bucks or something but like i wouldn't you know i wouldn't say no if they did make them yeah and at this point i guess we'll just add that setsuna is still flying his trusty old double o riser from the end of season two of double o because his his new his new toy is not quite ready yet to be sold so it's kind of like kind of like goku still waiting in that in that back to tank or whatever exactly yeah it's, it's not, like not not quite there yet you're like oh everyone like everyone else has got target masters and you're just using like an old like oh, what you've got a you've got a jazz like his gun doesn't even turn into a gun like or a person but, like what but setsuna is so badass that it doesn't matter yeah if Setsuna had a target master, you'd all be shitting your pants right now. Yeah. So the Else end up creating a black hole portal on Jupiter's red spot. And this is where they use this black hole to launch their invasion fleet. And the Federation forces end up traveling to Mars using Captain Descartes' shaman in his Gadalaza as bait then there is a hostile assimilation of the Federation fleet, and it leaves Descartes to make a last stand, but he too is eventually horribly, horribly assimilated. Like, I, I, I can't go into enough detail, but I mean, it, it, it involves the same kind of idea as what happened to the girl, where there are all these metallic protrusions slowly co closing in on these human beings but it gets really like bloody and punctury and it, it just seems like one of those things where I, I think I've always thought that if you were to get killed in wartime in a submarine you know how that would just be like a horrible horrible way to die like I, I feel like this is kind of similar where it, not only are they in space but then there's these kind of metal protrusions like slowly 
kind of closing in and, and, and crushing them or absorbing them and it, it just kind of looks to me it looked like it was just a, a total horror show so that yeah that, it's yeah. pretty it's pretty awful yeah but I guess that's like that's the end of Shaman like at that, that yeah point, yeah like, and that, that's one of those things where you're like hey what the you know like if, if you thought that he was going to be either a big bad or, or play a big role in this based on the promotional material it's like uh, it's it's like one of those things you know you know what that kind of reminded me of you know how like in Ultimate Avengers 2 like Hank Pym gets killed in that direct-to-video animated thing like I, I, I was always like I, I kept having to go back and go what happened to Hank Pym I'm like he's he's dead, and I kept replaying that <laughs> scene, going, "What? They killed they killed him! I totally missed that! Like he sacred what?" And I went and watched it again, and I guess they did kill him. And I, I felt like the same thing with this. It's like, wait, what happened to the card? Like he was here, and then oh, oh, he's dead! <laughs> you know, like, whoops! Oh right, yeah, he died. You know, oh. Like, oh, okay, well, that's that's embarrassing. I, a bit of trivia, I guess. In the manga adaptation of this movie, like during the final battle, like Setsuna actually encounters like an L's infected like Gadalaza like in the core but like he kind of just blows through it without a second thought but like I was thinking it would have been cool if they like this was like a boss fight or something but oh, yeah okay. but it did obviously it doesn't happen okay so speaking of that I mean celestial being does arrive on the scene and I mean they're they're basically a little too late to help out any of these federation guys and Descartes even though they sort of they sort of try, but I mean, there's not too much they can do. And at that point, Setsuna executes a Transam burst in order to attempt to communicate with the Els. I guess going into some detail in case people are like, "What's a Transam?" from the series. I mean, I, I always kind of compared it to like it's like the Gundam version of a Kaioken attack. <laughs> yeah, that, that helps anybody, but. Like that, in this case, I guess again, kind of like you were talking about with the Gundam particles and stuff like the GN particles. Like it, it sort of becomes a little all-purpose because you know mostly it would just sort of you know multiply the the speed and and effectiveness, the strength of attacks in the middle of a mobile suit fight. But it was very limited. You know, it was kind of like a burst of it's... of strength and speed, and it would burn out really quickly. But in this case, they seem to use the Transam to sort of communicate with this alien life form. Yeah, it's like the, the GN particles, particularly in innovators, like foster like telepathic like communication, basically. So basically, Setson is trying to create a field in which he can communicate with the Elses. And uh, I, I was going to say another bit of trivia is like Transam's also like a reference to like Char Aznable because you know they say the in Transam a suit's like performance goes up like three times and like they're they're the the suit is completely cloaked in red particles so like you know like obviously you know Char Aznable. It's like if you're cloaked in red particles, do you also start finding underage girls like attractive as well? If I guess so. Transam yeah. Or whatever. I guess so. Uh, there's there's that pitfall as well if you if you stay in the transam mode too long you, you can fall into some some dark paths or whatever but uh, unfortunately for setsuna he basically at this point falls victim to a mental attack when he's trying to communicate with the else and he's rendered comatose tieria reveals Raphael gundam's backpack sarah v to save setsuna and he rips Double O Riser's cockpit from the frame, handing it to Lock On, 
as Tieria activates Transam in order to self-destruct and wipe out the Else. The Soul Brave Squadron, led by Graham Aker, arrive to the battle to avenge their comrades and inadvertently assist the Ptolemaeus to escape. It's not much of a sacrifice on Tieria's behalf because his consciousness and mind ends up returning to the supercomputer Beta. Graham Aker is lamenting not being able to come in time to save Setsuna as Felt Grace watches over him in the medical bay. With more Elses on the way from Jupiter and a large moon-sized Else at their core, all hands are on deck to join the fight. Even Saji joins our entire cast of characters in the fight against the Else and makes his stand at the orbital elevator. So that's just kind of me kind of going through all the main beats really quickly and everything. I'm not sure if you, you have any comments on, on that kind of stuff. I was going to say, I think both you and I, like, share a love of, like, Graham Aker. And oh, yeah. He's, like, yeah. the man, yeah. So, like, yeah, he's probably my favorite character well, in this series. So. I mean, you know, not, not to sound, uh, you know, super nationalistic, even though I probably am, but, like, Graham Aker's, like, the only American dude in this whole thing, really. <laughs> I mean, he, he really, to me, he, he is that representation of somebody I like, no matter what their their role is. I mean, clearly he was an antagonist for Setsuna in the TV series. He was playing the role of, of Char, basically, you know, he, he started out as kind of a, a arrogant kind of cocky pilot. And also, you know, by the second season he was masked, you know, and he went around calling himself Mr. Bushido. So there was that aspect that he was again, another kind of like Char Asnable type homage he, be, he became a total weeaboo in the second season. <laughs> and and also there's that aspect as well. Like if he is the, the, the representation of an American character, yes, he did become a total weeaboo in the in the second season. And and I, I, I guess all I was gonna say was, you know, much like my love of characters like McDougal and Spriggan, I mean my love for that knows no bounds and it doesn't really it doesn't really matter if if he's he's a nasty guy or not, and I don't think I don't think Graham Aker is one of those guys. I think he's one of those sort of honorable opponents. For you know, th that's probably the best way I could describe his character. You know, and and he is he is a super cool guy, and and I do really love the character just like you do. Yeah, definitely. Like I'm I'm glad to see him back and like I feel like the second season, like I, I thought Mr. Bushido was like cool and all, but like he didn't really get a lot of character development in the second season. He just kinda showed up to be like, Fight me, boy like and then you know, sits and be like, No, I don't wanna <laughs> and then yeah, at the end he kinda is like, Okay, well I guess he doesn't wanna fight me, so like I'm done. And then like yeah, when he comes back in this movie, he's back to being like the cool, like American ace pilot like guy that we we, well, he, he you know, definitely, he sort of got over his weeaboo phase, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, yep. and, and he's okay with, well, I mean, part of it was that, you know, obviously his face is injured and everything. So there there was that aspect to it too, sort of maybe a, a vanity aspect maybe. But in this case, you, you can see like his coolness is back because he's running around without the mask and, and he doesn't seem to have any uh, concerns or, or, 
you know, he almost like when he was Mr. Bushido, he almost seemed like he was like str- supposed to be like a parody of a Char character almost. Yeah, where he had yeah, like yeah, maybe. he had like no other like purpose in the second season other than to like show up and bedevil like the main character basically and just you know be like fight me and like sets him like I don't want I'm busy like go away like <laughs> yeah but yeah in whatever case we love Graham and yeah we'll we'll talk more about him probably later. Yeah, yeah. So the double O Quanta, which we talked about a couple times already, is delivered by the Vashtis. Tieria requests that a mini Veda terminal be installed in the cockpit. And at this point, the final battle commences with the Elses. Kati tells her husband, Patrick Colasar, not to die. Andrei Smirnov heads off into battle after the missile barrage launched by the Federation fails to damage the giant moon-sized else. Graham Aker rallies his soul-brave squadron and also tells them not to die. Kati fires the main particle cannon, which does actually damage the superstructure. Moving forward, the plan is to use the particle cannons on the else's. The else's then respond by copying the mobile suit armaments of the Federation, attack fleet, and have adapted to the main particle cannon, deflecting the second fired shot. So even though it looks like the good guys are getting kind of an advantage here against the Els, when Kati ends up landing a pretty good shot that actually damages this moon-sized behemoth of a structure, it kind of like turns the tables when they absorb all these federation you know ships and everything and then all of a sudden these because it's like the elves are like i guess when they start they're just these weird triangular shaped things that just kind of fly around and attack all the mobile suits but then after they sort of absorb a couple of the ships then it's like they can replicate and they they have sort of more of a knowledge of the designs and everything so then these triangular things start combining together and they actually sort of form their own little mobile suits which basically sort of freaks out everybody and and they don't you know even even Graham Akers kind of like they can take down ships too like I mean I think they were expecting that you know mobile suits could get destroyed but it seemed like they sort of they, they were kind of not not resting on their laurels but but sort of had confidence in all their flagships and these big you know ships that that were you know sent in to this fleet and that you know oh well you know this big cannon is going to be our ace in the hole and that's going to help us out but if even those size ships can get absorbed you know it's looking pretty grim for for all the people that are you know basically fighting for earth yeah i mean like the elses are like i I don't know like they're I, i it's hard to under like see it's hard to i don't know imagine if they're like sentient or not at this point like like some part of me was kind of like you know even if you do try to communicate with them like who who's to say they'll like understand which is like the main theme i guess of this movie and it's yeah yeah yeah. but but at but at this point i think where it shows that they can like adapt to like combat situations it shows like well i guess they're at least as smart as like a dog or something like they're adapting to like situations or like some kind of like monkey or something so at this point i was kind of like okay well maybe you can like talk to them but you know i guess we'll, we'll see 
but I mean, do you like? I, I I know I know this is gonna sound like I'm taking you too literally, but it's like if you throw a dog a ball, they chase it, right? And maybe they bring it back to you. But this is kind of the equivalent of throwing a alien a ball, and the alien throws the ball back at you the same way, so you can catch it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like it's a little different than like like a dog. Do you know what I mean? Where yeah, you're like you're like, well wait a minute, that's kind of weird. Like it's like you're not really you you can't basically have a conversation with this alien, but you're you're sort of having a conversation because you're like, well wait a minute. I just, you know, I I showed him a tennis racket. I I I, you know, did a serve and then now he's he's he's, you know, hitting the ball back at me. You know what I mean? So it's like, well wait a minute. He he basically is picking up on the rules of this. You know what I mean? Like, so... Yeah. Or, or whatever it is. Well, that's so, why it's, like, maybe maybe closer to, like, a monkey's intelligence. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that, but... that there's something something there, you know, but not... There's there's not a mutual understanding at this point, basically. So we've got Gundam's Haruta and Zabanya appearing on the scene to aid the Earthsphere Federation forces. Alleluia and Hallelujah combine their split personalities once again, and Lock-On uses the Zabanya's GN rifle and holster bits to destroy the Els in mass. Andrei Smirnov fights one of the Els ships that have broken through the front line and is heading straight for Earth. At the cost of his life, Andre uses Trans Am in Overload, self-destructing his GNX mobile suit, and destroying the else ship. So do you, do we want to have a moment of like what did you think of this? Like do you want to have a moment of silence for Andre? Like, <laughs> I know that, like he was never really a likable character. I mean like he was always trying to like, you know, when when Luis was part of the Allaws or whatever, like Saji's girlfriend like in the second season was part of that like yeah, that yeah. that homage Titans like organization yeah, basically yeah. like in like, he was always trying to, like, mac on her, and so, like, you know, obviously the viewer is probably more drawn towards Saji, since he's, like, with Celestial Beings, so, like, of course you're not gonna like the guy who's trying to, like, steal, like, the, one of the protagonist's girls. Girlfriend, yeah. And then, yeah. like, he goes and he kills his father, who, like, pretty much everyone liked, basically, like, who was a character that probably everyone, like, you know, had an attachment to, so... I don't, like, I guess that they were trying to, like, redeem him a little bit by having him, like, give his life for Earth. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like the whole, like, you know, Parallax and Final Night thing. It's like he did a bunch of horrible shit before he got to that point, but it's like, look at me, I'm gonna... I'm gonna save the world from the Sun Eater at the last minute, and everybody should like me now. Or yeah, but see, the thing is, like, he doesn't interact with any other character in this movie, so it's all very, like, isolated, and, like, yeah, I think that's... Yeah, yeah. It's like, I couldn't really muster, I was like, oh, well, there goes Andre, like, when I first saw that, like, I like I couldn't really muster any sympathy for him, but, like, I was like, well, I guess you made a good showing of it at the, in the end. Yeah, I think, like, sort of isolated, it, it, it has the potential to make you feel a little bad for him, but I can see the point of view of people who basically are fans of the series and, and have that opinion, like, oh, motherfucker deserved that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can see both points of view to it. I mean, I, I think watching this, this, you know, this second instance that I watched this for the show, I did sort of feel a little bad for him. You know what I mean? But, but yeah. then... You know, it's like I because maybe I'm just not a heartless fuck or whatever. But maybe, maybe. I was just kind of like you know I I, but but I I do sort of understand you know given the context of, of what came before it, you know why it, it, it that wouldn't necessarily resonate with 
with other viewers. Maybe maybe if he was given a moment to like talk with Luis or like Marie or someone he had interacted with in the series, yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, yeah, it feels kind of like isolated and like uh, something not not tacked on, but it's just like another thing. Like he was kind of like a sacrificial lamb to show how like real the stakes were getting, basically. Yeah, yeah. There's that. I I, I guess it's interesting that you mentioned that 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 he has no interactions with all these other characters, and I guess something that we haven't talked about. I mean, we sort of talked about it when I sort of was trying to establish that a lot of the moments in this movie are all about reintroducing characters that viewers from the TV series would be familiar with. So it's like this old homecoming of, oh, look, it's Tieria. Oh, look, it's Satsuna. Oh, look, it's Lockon. Oh, check it out. It's Marina Ishmael. You know, and, you, and you're going through all these characters and having these sort of reunions with them but the thing that's sort of nice about it is kind of what you're saying is that they all sort of most of them do eventually you know i know they're on the run from the else and there's all this crazy stuff going on but there usually is some point where you know lock on and setsuna meet with felt you know like like you know Miss Sumeragi basically is, you know, and and her crew on the 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 Ptolemaeus, you know, they interact with Alleluia and Marie, and it's like, oh, Marie, Alleluia, we haven't seen you in so long, and they have these little moments amongst all this kind of fighting and battle, and and it's true what you're saying that Smirnoff never gets, you know, he never gets any moment like that with anybody, you know, it's like he's. He's sort of in his mobile suit or off on his own. Like, I mean, there's not too many people other than, you know, other political aficionados who you don't really give two shits about in this that he interacts with, you know? Yeah. But like I said, I mean, it, it was it was it was sad, like from a like the 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 way it was portrayed, like in animation, and like just there's like a sad song playing, and like, yeah, you know, it's yeah. kind of. But like but there, a, there's the, there's like the imagery, like he almost like he's returning to his mother and father, yeah, and like stuff so. like that. So there there, I mean, I I guess maybe those aspects are. I guess yeah, he's kind of to give you the feels or whatever. Well, I guess he's he's standing in for proxy, like for Sergei Smirnov, who was like obviously a more liked character character basically so yeah yeah well i mean i i think in some ways maybe that's part of where my my feels come from do you know what i mean like that yeah it's it's also harkening back to you know the the strength of that character he was so likable that even his douchebag of a son can get some some likability out of me in his demise because he's he's doing it for his father do you know what i mean like that that that's kind of a like you said, it's a redeemer, you know, it's kind of like a noble way to exit the series, even though, you know, maybe he's done some, some questionable things or, you know, things that, that are not in the best interest of the protagonists that you normally follow. Yeah. So meanwhile, on board the Ptolemaeus, a still comatose Setsuna lies in a dreamlike state, and Setsuna sees visions of his friends and their trials and tribulations while the ghosts of long-dead characters from the original series, such as the original Lock-On, Christina Sierra, and Lichtenthal Seri push to keep him living. Setsuna then touches the flower that Felt gave him, and finally wakes up, finding Felt holding his hand, crying. Setsuna then launches into battle in the 00 Quanta, 
along with Tiaria in the mini beta console. So this is basically the whole, you know, Goku, why aren't you here? You know, and Goku finally like shows up and you know comes to fight Frieza or whatever. Like this is that kind of moment. So uh, Sensuna should have been like radioed Lock on and like Alleluia and been like, you guys need Sensu beans? Like, like I guess. That's, like... <laughs> I think everybody on that show needs some Sensu beans by now, man. Like, there's some. Serious shit going on. I think like uh, the the part that got me like the first time watching it that might have made me sad or got a lump in my throat was yeah when like the lock on and and Leech D and Christina showed up again and like told them like wake up you fuck like like yeah 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. And, yeah and like I I like felt too so like I I think I kind of like. I, I would root for him and Felt over him and Marina. So like. yeah, you you sort of well, I I I I see both. I I kind of feel bad for Felt, like because it's just like yeah, like, like she 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 loves him way more than than he loves her, or or that maybe that's not the right way to say it, but her love for him specifically is way more than than his like because i don't know it, it's weird it, it's basically like making a, a, a lot of excuses for the main character i mean she even says it in some of the dialogue where she's like you know it's like satsuna's got love for everybody or whatever you know and it's supposed to like yeah. excuse it but it's like one of those things where you're like oh poor felt but you know at the same yeah. time you're kind of like oh well you know like that's just i think know, like I, I like that between them because i feel like that's an extension of like setsuna's like character development almost where like in the first season when felt was like a little girl she kind of had a crush on the original lock on and then now that she like you know she's sort of into Setsuna like that it's kind of saying that Setsuna has become more like like the original Lock-On so he's like you know he's kind of grown into like he's become a like you know a, a better guy basically so like I, I I like that basically yeah that's I mean that's a cool way to see it and and you know both both of them kind of looked up to like you know Neil Delandy as like a sort of mentor so like yeah. I I think it like thematically it like it makes sense to me basically. And so, just as it looks like Patrick Colossar is done for, it looks like he's about to be saying his farewells to Kati, because the else metal things are slowly closing in on him. Setsuna arrives in the double-O Quanta and blasts his ship, but it actually saves the pilot from assimilation. Lock-On in Gundam Zabanya and Graham Aker, who is half-assimilated in his flag, help make way for the double-O Quanta to enter the core of the moon-sized Els. The Trans Am dialogue between Setsuna and the Els begins. The Els' original homeworld had been consumed by a red giant star, and the Els began searching the universe for a new home. The Els only quote-unquote misunderstood and wanting mutual understanding they then convert into a gigantic version of the flower from Setsuna's dreams this giant space flower halts the conflict and except for all the dead people we have this abrupt happy ending and a cut to the end credit 
So I, I, I kind of went through the ending fairly quickly, but I also kind of wanted to give people the vibe of what it's like when you saw this for the first time, because it's... <laughs> it's so abrupt and jarring, I feel like, this ending. And of course, this is our Blue Cupcake... Uh, our Blue Cupcake-themed episode, and of course... The one thing that all of us fanholes, even those who could not be here tonight, like Tony and Justin and so on, like, we all talk about this giant space flower as a, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what is this shit? You know, like, so, you know, I, yeah, it's it's very sort of... It's like, I, I get what it means, and I get yeah, yeah, what like, they're going not, it, for, but, yeah, like, but it's just so bizarre. Like, I, yeah. like it's so, like, bizarrely, like, literal, but also a metaphor at the same time. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, well, let's, I guess we'll start all the way at the beginning of, yeah, like, that yeah. summary, because, like, I, 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 I love, like, the whole, like, Setsuna arrives on the battlefield scene, and, like, there's, a, like, a momentum that starts up, like, all the way until he makes it all the way into, like, the L's core, basically, and, like, the music's great, everything's, like, you know, fast-paced, and, like, it's a, it's probably, like, my favorite scene in the movie. And, yeah, of course, it starts off with that, like, comedy moment where, like, Patrick is blasting off again, basically. Yeah, it's funny It's funny how, like, even, like, Setsuna and I think Alleluia, you know, also does that move. And it's kind of like that funny move where, like, you know how they always get you to try to watch, like, Empire Strikes Back in, like, freeze frame slow-mo so you could see, like, when the, the TIE fighters explode in the... Millennium Falcon asteroid chase scene like you can see a little TIE fighter pilot who like rolls out of the frame or whatever during that explosion but again like my attitude is kind of like that TIE fighter pilot is fucking dead you know <laughs> yeah. like so it's like one of those things where it's funny it's like I, it's kind of like one of those things where it's like it reminds me of like ridiculous Batman semantics where it's like I will not use a gun but I will throw this battering that's filled with high density plastic explosive and I'll blow you to kingdom come and I'll sleep better at night and it's just like what like are you <laughs> kidding me like like this is crazy and like it basically like they they these characters I mean this is this is touting that you know, seed, seed destiny line here in this movie where it, it, you basically just have to suspend your disbelief and accept that these characters are so good and so proficient with their weaponry that they can disable people without killing them and cannot be killed in return. And also, you know, like th this idea of they can, you know, explode a ship stopping the encroachment of this else assimilation but yet the actual intended assimilee can just sort of harmlessly like spin away like darth vader but not <laughs> into a die. space kirk roll away yeah yeah basically like that's kind of what happens and, and 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 what's funny is like maybe if patrick colasar was the only one it happened to you could chalk it up as he's the invincible patrick and like just have a good chuckle about it to yourself because that was always his sort of thing that was the, that was the running gag in the show you know in in, in in the tv series but but when alleluia does it with other people i feel like that kind of ruins my no prize of of why that works if that makes any sense because because there are also other people who are doing the the running 
Kirk role in space, you know, <laughs> that also get saved that are basically, well, you know, non-named characters. I guess, I mean, it, I, it was okay to me because, like, it, like the, the, the Harut does, like, sort of pay a price for saving that guy. Like, part of, like, it, like, part of its thruster gets, like, assimilated, so he has to eject it. So I feel like, you know, he does, it's not like he gets away unscathed for saving that guy's life, but, like, I do see what you're saying, too. So, do we do we want to discuss the the exit the the graceful exit of Graham Acre? Yeah, sure. Like, yeah, like I was kind of expecting it to happen. Like, cause I, I feel like like at this point, like th- there was no other way to end his like story arc. Basically, like where other like I don't know. Like he kind of like learned his lesson, I guess, at the end of the second season. And like in this movie, he's just kind of back to being like cool guy, and he's not gonna be like Setsuna's rival anymore. So like, what is he? And like, it, it pretty much, yeah, he kind of sacrifices himself, and like, you know, he he car he carves the path basically for Setsuna to save the day. So I think you know it was a blaze of glory. So I mean, I I was I was. You know, I was sad to see him go, but I was like, oh, well, that's a good way to go out, I guess. Well, it also seemed like if he hadn't have done that, he just would have been assimilated anyway at that yeah. point. You know, because it did seem like he was already sort of on his way to to being incorporated into the, the else sort of Borg apparatus or whatever, you know? So it, it, it seemed like one of those things where it was one of those... It, 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 it's... It's a difference between like a noble sacrifice and a sort of a. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but like uh, a resigned noble sacrifice. Like I mean, you know, like one of those things where you like, oh, I know, I know, I'm gonna go out, so I might as well go out super cool, you know, like that that kind of thing. Like I might yeah. as well make my death mean something instead of just have it be meaningless you know and 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 he, he obviously like to you and me he means a great deal and so and and you know without him obviously we wouldn't have our climactic resolution as well so that that i mean he did provide him the opportunity and it, it's interesting because i mean i guess his character growth is large because you know the, the Graham acre that was at the beginning of the show probably wouldn't have seen the benefit to what Setsuna does and is doing. And and I almost I mean I feel like I could talk about that for hours because I I start to question like it, it it's the way the best way I can describe it to people is by using my pokey analogies and that's kind of what I like to do because it's hard for me to verbalize stuff. But think of it this way. Like I kind of think of Gundam 00 in general, like the TV series and maybe the entire movie leading up to this point as the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. There's not... I mean, there's a little depth to it, but there's not a whole lot of depth to it. It's designed to appeal to a mass audience. It's definitely intended to entertain with action and and stuff like that. And I mean, if you horribly hate the J.J. Abrams series, this analogy might not mean a whole lot to you. Or if you terribly love Star Trek The Motion Picture, this analogy might not mean a lot to you. But I feel like the else, the aliens, are kind of comparable to V'ger in that way. Where, like, V'ger is an alien life form. 
he is sort of childlike and doesn't understand exactly what he's doing, and all he wants to do is reunite with his creator. And Kirk, by way of, you know, Creepy Dad from Seventh Heaven and fucking Ilya, you know, you know, helps him achieve that goal, right? And then everything's happy, the Earth doesn't get assimilated and destroyed, and, and we all go about our business and Kirk save the world. But there is that part of me that is not as evolved at a, as a Federation citizen that goes, what about that fucking Federation space station that was, uh, like, totally wiped out by V'ger? What about all those fucking Klingons that were, like, totally wiped out by V'ger? It's like, to be a Federation citizen and to have first contacts on a daily basis, it's almost like you have to be willing to accept that loss of life is the price to pay for continuing to expand the Federation and have these first contacts. And, and I sort of feel like, in this case, like, Setsuna is doing the Federation thing. You know, like, he's reaching out, he's having first contact with the aliens, he actually makes a bridge, and they actually understand one another, and the conflict stops, and that's great, but then there's that weird aspect where, like, you're like... I, I guess in working together, there's probably going to be some sense of restitution, and we'll, we'll talk about the after credits and what sort of occurs after that that gives you some notion, but the way it ends as we've described it to this point, it's just a giant flower shows up and everybody stops fighting. And it's the weirdest thing ever because you're wondering, well, what about Graham? Like, what about Smirnoff? Like, what about all these guys that literally died <laughs> to open up no, a dialogue yeah. with, with sort of this naive alien race? Or, you know, conceivably maybe we're a little naive because we couldn't talk to them too. I don't know. Maybe it's a a very centralistic point of view, like a humanistic point of view. I don't know if that's even applicable because we don't have any real aliens, but you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's 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 stuff like that that made me think of it, where it's like, basically, I guess what I was trying to get at with the analogy is, you know, it felt like I was watching a J.J. Abrams movie for the whole time, and then all of a sudden, at the last minute, it turned into the motion picture. And I was just like, wait, what? Like, that's totally <laughs> weird. Because imagine you don't have all the setup of the motion picture and the... The, the graceful, loving pans and, and the whole cerebral notion of communicating with an alien life form. I mean, most of this kind of straight up appears to be, there's an alien coming from Earth, and this alien race is going to assimilate us like the Borg. Well, what else is there left to do? Be Picard and, like, blow the fucking Borg up. But then it kind of tweaks. I guess maybe a better analogy is, I kind of thought this was first contact, and then it turned into the motion picture. If that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I can I can see that analogy. I I, I kind of like I was reminded of the end of Transformers Generation Two, like with the swarm and stuff. Okay. Like, okay. And like, yeah, at the very end, like Optimus Prime like opens the Matrix and like the swarm is enlightened and he like he, you know it it reconstitutes Optimus Prime. But then you're, you're yeah you're kind of like I, I gotta do my like henchman 24 voice like in the background like uh yeah you got rebuilt but what about all those other guys that the swarm ate like you know <laughs> what about, what about, what about yeah what about slag and nightbeat and those guys like what happens to them and up in the front it's like oh like uh, like take that man away like, <laughs> uh, yeah 
Yeah. It's the same thing where it's like Setson is like, I've, I've stopped, like the aliens understand us now. And then, the guy, you know, Henchman 24 is like, oh, yeah, but, you know, we lost like, you know, thousands of, you know, soldiers before that. <laughs> about them? Like, it's cool. Like, I get it. Like, did a good job. But... Yeah, but what about, what about everybody else? Yeah. It's, it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. So, I guess just wanting to give people some, you know, because, God, you're hoping that this after credit sequence is going to somehow explain the giant space flower to you. And not, like we said, not like we don't understand what it represents in the meeting, but just, just the fact that it's so kind of off-kilter and, and such a strange way to end the series and that you might get some more explanation. And so the, the after credit sequence, and, you know, I, I guess I'd point out that this is... This is kind of in the era of the whole Marvel film, so I don't know if this was something influenced by that, but, I mean, like you were saying, the entire second season had after-credits sequences like these in the television series, so if anything, it's probably just an homage to the TV series that this movie sprung from. But it's actually, it's weird. It starts out, you know, surprise, surprise, it's a blue cupcake movie. And the after credit sequence is weird. So it starts out with a flashback to 2091 AD, and we see Aeolia Shenberg speaking to E.A. Ray, who was the human base for Ribbon's Allmark, on his visions of the future and understanding between people. But then it jumps 50 years later to 2364 AD, and so this flower in space is now this deep space station that is set up for intergalactic travel, and the elves are now coexisting with humanity. And there's a ship named after my favorite character, Miss Sumeragi, who I didn't talk about very much in this because I'm sad because it was like she was this super-duper hottie boom body in the first season. And then somehow, like, somewhere along the way between that four years, it's like, she lost her implants and took a lot of drugs or something and got really strung out and skinny and I don't know what happened to her, man, but I was I was telling Mike before we started the show, I was like, What happened to you, baby? What happened? You were so hot. You were great. But anyway, she she really went downhill in the second season and in this movie it's like not only was she downhill but like she cut her hair and I don't know. I don't know what happened, Miss Sumeragi. You were so great, but I don't know what happened. But anyway, there's this ship named after Miss Sumeragi, called the Sumeragi, and it's being prepared for travel, and it is being crewed by innovators, including that girl in the promo material whose name was Amia Lee, who is now healed from having all that shit stuck in her, and since this is like 50 years later, she's unaged. Like, she looks exactly like she did back when this movie took place. And as a news correspondent is talking on camera, there's this really, another really weird sequence where there's this weird Tieria-looking innovate, and it's like you can't even tell, like, is it supposed to be a nod to something? Like, Tieria's innovate look, like, gets used a bunch in the future because he's a famous person? Or is it just that the animators are lazy and they had that model lying around and they just used it again and then when he floats past the news guy he's got like this evil look on his face like what the fuck are you doing newscasting for bitch 
Like, and it's like, I, yeah, I, I, anyway, I, I, I can't really explain it, but again, it's, it's, it's a little strange, but it sort of gives you some ideas of what might be going on in this idealized future and everything. And then, kind of what I was longing for in the entire movie, but only came in this after credit sequence. This kind of reminds me of the after credit sequence in Thor The Dark World, where, like, you know, it was the big fuck you to all the girls who leave before the Marvel after credits and take their boyfriends <laughs> away. And in this one, if they would have stayed around, like, they would have gotten what they actually wanted, which is, like, you know, Thor and Jane Foster, like, hugging and being all lovey-dovey and shit. And, like, this is kind of what that scene's like for me, because I sort of... I, I know Mike was saying he was more shipping Felt and Setsuna, but I think I, I was more kind of shipping Marina, Ishmael, and Setsuna. And so they're in this undisclosed countryside, and they're pretty much, by this point, Marina is way, way older than she was before. It's like she's in her like 80s or 90s, and she's kind of half-blind, and she's playing the piano, and then she senses that someone's there, but, you know, she's kind of like Aunt May and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Like, she can't fucking see, like, her nose in front of her or whatever, and so she doesn't know what's going on. But eventually she hears the voice, and she can tell this is Setsuna, and Setsuna is now this weird-looking hybrid where he's he's part else and part innovator, and he's almost like Setsuna. He's the T one thousand. I, I was gonna say he's like the Silver Surfer, oh, Setsuna, yeah, or the something Silver like Setsuna. That. You know, the Silver Setsuna, and and basically he is now fulfilling his promise to actually see Marina Ismail again. And Setsuna tells a now crying Marina that he finally understands her message of peace and they share this emotional embrace. And then we cut to his Gundam that's covered in a bunch of freaking weird-ass fucking flowers again, and then there's this quote, which I, I guess it's... I'm thinking it's supposed to be something that Saji says, but I don't know if it's, like, a real quote from, like, somebody historically or whatever, but basically it ends with this quote that says, Peace cannot be kept by force. It can only be achieved by understanding. And so it's basically kind of, you know, hitting you over the head with their sort of mantra. I think it's it's an Albert Einstein quote. Okay, okay, Albert Einstein. So I know Saji frequently mentions that when he's in the middle of all those battles and stuff. So we've got Albert Einstein. <laughs> you know what's, so, just to interrupt, you know what's funny? If you type that quote into Google, like... The, the second image that comes up is of that, of the double O quanta and the field of flowers. <laughs> so it's like, flowers, it's like yeah. Albert Einstein, like famous quote, and like second Google like response is a Gundam movie. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So, but yeah, I mean, but even that in and of itself, like, it, it, isn't that like some weird imagery and stuff and historical context like all smooshed together at the end there where it's like okay so we've got this albert einstein quote we've got the double o quanta we've got weird hybrid setsuna and then this mobile suit and the the hillside is all covered in flowers and stuff so it's almost like you're still kind of like okay so like and then part of me is kind of like dude man you waited like 80 fucking years before you tried to hook up with that? Like, what? Like, what's the matter with you, dude? Like, I don't get it. It's like, you can clearly see from the piano and the, the frames and everything that she, she went on and had a family and did all this important stuff. But I was like, I still sort of felt kind of like, what's up with that? That's so weird. But, I mean, I, I, I 
you know, wrote a couple of things that I sort of already shoehorned into the discussion that we were having already. But one other thing I wanted to just quote, because I I thought it was very apropos for, for my feelings on this movie in general, but this was a quote from a MAHQ review of the film when it first came out by Chris... Gaunch, I think I'm saying that right. I hope I am. But anyway, his last line about the the movie review states, This movie is definitely not intended for newcomers, and at times it can be a little unsubtle and preachy about its theme of understanding, but it serves as the perfect conclusion to the story of the Double O universe. So I was like, I, I think that's kind of like a fair summation of this movie in general you know like and and i just figured i'd i'd kind of toss that out there because that's that's kind of how i feel about this i mean it's not it's not the greatest movie in the world but it's certainly i mean it's certainly entertaining you know and and you know it doesn't it doesn't have anything in it that makes me incredibly angry or pissed off or anything and and, but it also i i don't know that it's going to go down in history as like you know one of my favorite gundam movies ever or anything either yeah, no, no, like, I like this movie in general. I mean, some people, like, yeah, criticize it for being, like, weird or whatever. But I think, I don't know, I think, at the very least, I, like, I understand the giant space flower more than I do the tea spare. So, like... <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That's true. I, I, I remember, you know, inviting people over to watch Char's Counterattack and just making sure I wasn't completely Looney Tunes. Because I was like, you think this is weird too, right? Like... You know, so I, I I don't remember ever inviting anybody over to watch the giant space flower. I just kind of figured, okay, this is, wow. I think, also, like, I think the space flower, like, I think you need to have watched the series to get a lot of, like, the impact of the flower, like, on yeah. Setsuna, yeah. basically, and what the flower's imagery, like, like, basically represents to him, which is, you know, ba- basically, like, peace and, like, home and, like, you know, rebirth or whatever, so... Yeah, because because it's it's a very like because he's he's communicating with the innovators. It's a very personal thing. I mean, I, I think that's why I kind of compared it to the motion picture. It's like you know, V'ger merging with Decker at the end. You know what I mean? And it becomes this one-on-one sort of merge, and they they sort of understand each other and everything. I mean, I imagine you know, Silver Setsuna coming back would be like Decker coming back from the motion picture and he's half merged with V'ger and Ilea and they're like this super <laughs> watcher being. He comes, just... he comes back to like see old Kirk or whatever. And he's yeah. like, ah, oh, you're like old and fat now. Like, yeah, he and he's gives, like, damn it, gives... Decker. Like, Stop, <laughs> I'm beating with me. He gives, he gives, he gives chubby Kirk a hug and like they, they have a moment, you know, or something like that. But, but yeah, I mean that, that's kind of, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't I don't have too much more to say about it. I mean, you know, that that was our I, I don't think it was too tenuous. I mean, I, I really do think we we sort of think that that moment is, is a kind of what the fuck moment. I mean, I, I to me, I think on a on a more broad level, uh, you know, like how we understand because we watch the series, what that flower represents to Setsuna. Like, I think you know, if you're one of those reviewers that took it on its own merit, it could be like one of these things of, you know, peace and love and flowers and shit, you know? And and so there is that aspect to it where it's kind of, it can be a little, 
you know, it, it's kind of like like watching the end of the Fifth Element and going, "What is the Fifth Element? It's love," you know, and you're just <laughs> yeah. kind of like, "Oh, come on." Well, I don't know. Like my interpretation of it basically is since like he he mind melded or whatever with the else's. They wanted to create a symbol, like, plucked from his mind that would, like, instantly say to, like, as many people as possible what, that they understand and they they are seeking peace now, basically. So, that's, I mean, that's my interpretation of it. I don't yeah. know if you have anything, like, different, but... No, I don't, I don't think so. It's just one of those things where I, I have that whole, you know, Captain America and Civil War moment where I was like, we couldn't have done this, like two hours early, yeah before some buildings fell over, fell over yeah. and people died you know like we couldn't uh, we couldn't have hashed that out a little earlier <laughs> but you know i was like oh i guess you don't like, have oh them. yeah a flower that's real nice yeah <laughs> you couldn't have done that like two hours ago like <laughs> but yeah that's that's my only that's my only uh I wanted to like ask you did you did you watch this in Japanese or you know what I don't I don't to be honest I don't think I ever did I I, I think even when I rewatched it for this episode I I you know me I'm a dubby so like a lot of yeah. the times I I know like for for certain shows I've been watching like all the different versions but this one I just watched the dub and I I don't remember ever watching the the Japanese language version. Yeah, like, like, I originally watched it in Japanese, and I watched the dub, and then, like, for prep time, like, I watched it in Japanese, and then I kind of, like, sped through it, the dub again, like, sort of, like, just to see key scenes in the dub, and, like, I like the dub for the most part, but I don't know, two, two things I think the Japanese, like, voice actors do better, and, like, I think Alleluia and Hallelujah come off better in Japanese, basically. Okay, because, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's Richard Ian Cox who does Alleluia's dub voice. Like, and all I hear is like, Inuyasha. like Inuyasha, and then like crazy evil like Inuyasha. So <laughs> I don't know. Like the the Japanese like Seiyu like kind of sounds a lot more like unhinged when he's like Hallelujah, and not like I don't know. Like the dub Hallelujah Hallelujah sounds like sort of like I don't know, just sleazy and like slimy, I guess, instead of like just crazy. So. And then the other thing is, like I t- like I said, my favorite moment in the film is like when Setsuna like arrives on the battlefield and everyone's like, you know, he's here. And like Graham says, like, I've been waiting for you to show up, young man, you know, and like I love that line, but it's so much better in Japanese. Like I think I think of what I've seen of the Japanese version, I, I think I do sort of prefer even though it's funny, even though I sort of herald him as the American character, I think I sort of prefer the Japanese voice actor to the English dub voice actor. Yeah, like, it's so it's so much more, like, hot-blooded in Japanese. Like, where, like, in English, he just kind of says, yeah, I've been waiting for you to show up, young man. And like, in Japanese, he's like, da-da-da-da-da, shonen! Like, like, in, like, yeah, it's, it's like, so- you are here! You're the man! Like, oh! Like, he's so, like, excited. Like, it's, it's yeah, it's totally yeah. awesome, yeah. like, in Japanese, where in English, it was just kind of, like, matter-of-fact, kind of. I mean, other than that, like, I think it, it double O got a pretty good dub, and I mean, like, the Ocean Group is usually pretty competent at dubbing stuff, so yeah, like I mean, yeah, I liked it for the most part. But like those two points, I think I I think I prefer Japanese like Alleluia and Graham more than the English versions. But yeah, no, no, no I I totally get that. It's good it's good to discuss that stuff. So and especially because we're we're talking about the movie, and and even though I don't have much of a vantage point on the Japanese version, it's good to offer 
the listeners some of that that insight that you have you know, on the different versions. You know what I also wanted to mention, and like I think I've mentioned this before when we briefly like touched on Double O, like in the past, the the ending of this movie, like just the way it kind of shakes out with like Setsuna and like Tieria and like like the director of this of this movie and the series like Seiji Mizushima he also directed like Full Metal Alchemist like the original ser- like the original anime and, and, okay. and the, the Conqueror of Shambhala like that okay. the movie for that anime yeah, like, yeah. I, I I always notice like similar themes between like the like this movie and like the Conqueror of Shambhala and like the Conqueror of Shambhala ends with like Ed and Al choosing to like go into the past and like stay there basically like and stay like basically you know kind of leave their friends and family behind and like stay in like this like you know different world basically and that's pretty much what like Setsuna and Tyria do like at the end of this movie so I was kind of like oh you're leaving everyone behind and you gotta go to some other like place basically and yeah I like this I guess there's an element of like you know sadness to that basically where it's like oh we like there, there. To, you know what else? Like I thought of too when I was watching this is, you know, the the way the film ends. I mean, it is very hopeful and very optimistic, and it made me think of things like Close Encounters of the Third Kind or ET or something. You know, like that the idea that that this was a, a contact with aliens and it was going to be a good thing. I think the difference with like ET showed maybe that you know humanity wasn't ready, right? But and 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 Close Encounters, you know the the, the aliens, yeah, they were making Richard Dreyfus make you know mushroom mount or, or mashed potato mountains and shit. But it's like it's not like you know we need to do a number twenty four in any of those movies, right? It's not like anybody was horribly hurt, you know what I mean? Whereas I think in this there there is that slight aspect, and then you totally shift gears and by the end of it you know you're you're kind of in a spielberg mode you know and and that that to me was kind of you know uh, it, it was about as abrupt as you know oh here's a space flower the end you know like that that's kind of how abrupt that sort of tone change feels as well yeah no i, I definitely agree with that like and it is a definitely a, like a, a very like quick ending, like where you're like, wait, okay, the flower appeared, like everything's good now, like the end, like, <laughs> yeah, but I don't know, yeah, but other than that, I mean, yeah, for the most part, like I just notice, like I don't know, like the the director seems to enjoy that kind of sort of melancholy yet hopeful ending. Yeah, totally. All right, so I I think I think we've kind of exhausted all our talking points and and thoughts on. Gundam 00 the movie Awakening of the Trailblazer. We hope you've enjoyed this first installment of the new year of Fanhole's podcasting goodness. We also are on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. We stream our podcasts from there. We have all kinds of shows for you to check out. If you've enjoyed Mobile Suit Mondays, you can check out our other spin-off series such as Toku Thursdays, Sentai Saturdays, Transformers Tuesdays, and comics, motherfucker, do you read them? <laughs> so, if you want to check out any of those spin-off shows or our proper Fanholes podcast, you can go to fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. 
We are also on all kinds of social media, like Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. We appreciate all the likes and the feedbacks and the notes and the comments and all that good stuff. And if you should want to email us with any questions, comments, and or concerns, if you want to tell us that, you know, you totally don't think the blue cupcakes space flower is strange, you can email us at fanholespodcast at gmail.com. And until the next time, this is going to be Derek, Derek WC, fighting on to the future, signing off. Hey, it's Mike, and I am a Gundam. and understanding peace and understanding i think we understood each other i think we did i think that bouquet paid off marvelously <laughs> i just saw the bouquet and said i completely get where you're laying down man like that bouquet has a lot of um a lot of memories and stuff you know oh uh, yeah lots flowers of, lots, yeah lots, nice. of, lots of lots of backstory you know yeah, flowers. That's that's great. Yeah, could I have my best friend back? Like, <laughs> like you kind of killed all my friends. But, uh, <laughs> like the flowers, nice, I guess. Well, 
dude, the flower can totally get you on the next space flight to Ooga Booga or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, look at that. Peace. Yeah. Like, my arm is now metal. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess, I guess there is some restitution if, if, uh, what's her face? That girl is like, you know, 19 years old and she's, you know, really like 70 years old or whatever. So. <laughs> It's like it was my masturbating hand too. Like I can't. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not touching my dick with this. 